Scripture reading tonight comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 4. We'll read verses 4 through 42, the story of the woman at the well. It's on page 1651 in your pew Bible. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and who drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. 
But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Those of you who are married, I'm sure you remember when you first met your spouse, as those early days of dating or courtship, uh, those early days of preparing for marriage are a very sweet time. And not only do you enjoy getting to know one another, uh, but I think one of the, uh, the most enjoyable parts about those early stages of dating, those early stages of preparation for marriage, is being able to tell others about your newfound love. My wife and I met in college, uh, several hours from home for both of us, and, and so uh, we each had the privilege of, of being able to tell people back home about one another. And so I got to tell my family and friends about this sweet new girl I'd met. I got to tell them about her interests. I got to tell them what she looked like and show them pictures. I got to tell them about her family, about how we met, what we like to do together. And then eventually, I got to take her home to meet some of these people. And one of the interesting things about this whole process is how it turns so many of us into evangelists, spreading the good news of the one we love. We don't have to be told to do this. We do it unprompted. We do it with great joy. And I'd like to suggest we see something along these lines here in John chapter 4. Perhaps you've never thought about the story of the woman at the well this way, but, but I think you'll see that John very intentionally crafts this scene for us in a way that conjures up romantic marital imagery. And then he doesn't stop with just the announcement of a bride and a bridegroom, but our passage ends with that same kind of romantic evangelism. 
And so I want to look at John 4 tonight with that in mind as we see the wonderful truth that the love of the bridegroom compels us to mission. Now, if you're taking notes, that would be kind of a a theme statement, the main idea. The love of the bridegroom compels us to mission. And I want to look at just two things. I want to look at the wedding and the witness. And so first, let's look at the wedding scene and the context of John 4, if you were reading through the gospel straight through, uh, is uh, not surprisingly just after John 3. Uh, And at the end of John 3, uh, John the Baptist has just announced that Jesus is the bridegroom. John 3.29, he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. That's John's way of saying, I'm not the one that you're to be waiting for. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just, I'm just the best man at the wedding. He says, the one who is the bridegroom, that's who the bride belongs to. Sort of an interesting way of, of saying that he's not the Messiah. Uh, and we might just sort of write this off as kind of an interesting metaphor. Uh, if it wasn't for the fact that in the chapter just before that, John chapter 2, Jesus performed his very first sign at a wedding. Now, normally it would be the bridegroom who provides the wine at a wedding, but in John chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, we see that Jesus takes the place of the bridegroom in supplying the wine. And if Jesus is twice announced as the bridegroom, it has to make the reader wonder, who's the bride? It's a reasonable question, a question I think John is prompting us to ask. And for any first century reader who's familiar with the Old Testament, uh, that anticipation and curiosity about the identity of this bride are only going to increase as Jesus comes to Jacob's well in John chapter 4, verse 6. Can you think of anyone in the Old Testament who met their wife at a well? Well, John gives us his name three times in this passage, Jacob. In Genesis 29, we see a scene that looks very familiar to this. Um, Genesis 29.1, it says that Jacob continued on his journey, and then he came to the land of the eastern peoples, and there he saw a well in the field. And as Jacob takes his seat by this well, he's told in verse 6 that Laban's daughter Rachel is approaching. Verse 7 tells us this happens at high day, which means noon or the sixth hour, uh, the very same time Jesus meets this Samaritan woman. And so uh, Jacob approaches Rachel in verse 10, and at verse 11 it says that he kisses her and weeps aloud and reveals his identity to her as a near kinsman. And then she runs off in excitement to tell her family about this man she's just met about this heir of the covenant promises she's just met. And then they come and see, and eventually it ends in a wedding. And this isn't the only time in the Old Testament that an important patriarch meets his wife at a well. Uh, Genesis 24, just a few chapters before that, the longest narrative scene in the whole book of Genesis, Abraham's servant is sent to find a bride for Isaac, and he too meets her where? 
at a well. Genesis 24, 15, and it says, Rebecca approaches him, water jar in hand, and the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And again, the scene ends in a wedding. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother and took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And if that's not enough to convince you that this uh, well setting is significant, the same thing happens in Exodus chapter 2 with Moses and Zipporah. They meet at a well, and she's given as his bride. And so after reading in John 2 and John 3 that Jesus is the bridegroom, our interest in the identity of his bride is only heightened as Jesus sits down at Jacob's well at the sixth hour. Especially since John 4, 4 tells us he had to pass through Samaria. This is part of the divine plan. And so Jesus goes there, he sits down, and he waits. And so we, as the readers, wait. Uh, With all of heaven, we wait to see who it is that the Father has chosen to be the bride of his Son, And then 12 o'clock noon strikes, and we see off in the distance a silhouette approaching. We see a woman coming toward Jesus, and now we're on the edge of our seats. Who's it going to be? The angels in heaven are, are leaning over the balcony of heaven to see who it is that the Father has chosen to be the bride of his son. But then we come to verse 7, and it makes us do a double take. What? She's an unclean Samaritan? And then we keep reading, and we come to verse 18 and find out that this unclean Samaritan woman has had five husbands, and the man she's now living with is not her husband? No, this can't be right. We were expecting the purity of Rebecca, the beauty of Rachel, the strength of Zipporah. But this unnamed Samaritan woman with a scarlet A on her dress is none of these things. In fact, she's the very opposite of these things. But beloved, this is exactly the beauty of this romance. Because this woman is us, the bride of Christ. She's a Samaritan, a racial mix between Jew and Gentile. She's impure. She's unworthy. She's unlovable. She's filled with shame. That's why she's here in the heat of day all by herself. And it's because she is all of these things that she is the perfect symbol for the bride of Jesus Christ, as Augustine said long ago. This is our story. And it should humble us. Because even as Jesus exposes this woman's sin and shame and brokenness in verse 18, he exposes us. Uh, Yes, she sought lover after lover after lover, and none of them have satisfied. But if we know the story of the Old Testament, we know that was us too. As this Samaritan woman reminds us of another woman in the book of Hosea whom God used to symbolize the spiritual adultery of his people. As this conversation about living water reminds us of Jeremiah 2, where God's people have forsaken him, the fount of living water, and they've turned to broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Is that not us? Forsaking the endless fount of living water to try to find satisfaction in that which was never meant to satisfy. Uh, We look for satisfaction in our jobs. Uh, We look for it in our wealth, power, reputation. Uh, We try to find satisfaction in sexual experience and relationships. These are broken cisterns. And even as we drink of them, the counterfeit water is leaking out the bottom. That's why we can never have enough. They can't satisfy. And so this whole chapter should humble us. We're no better than this woman. We are this woman. In verse 29, Christ knows everything we ever did. He knows every broken cistern that you've ever tried to drink from. Every broken cistern you've ever tried to construct. He he knows every lie you've ever told to try to boost your reputation. Every dollar you've ever wasted trying to find happiness. Every lustful thought you've ever indulged. He knows our sin. But even though he knows your sin, still he woos you with his kindness. Bidding you to come and drink of him. And it's interesting, this living water theme that Jesus picks up uh, from Jeremiah. Uh, In Jeremiah itself is actually used as a marriage metaphor. Uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 2, the prophet says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Or as one commentator says, it, it might be translated more literally, I remember the love of your honeymoon. But then you went after worthlessness. You sought other gods. You exchanged my glory for that which cannot profit, forsaking me, the fount of living water, for broken cisterns that hold no water. And Proverbs 5 uses the same analogy in that great marriage passage. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be intoxicated always in her love. Song of Songs 4, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And then as the beauty of the bride is poetically described with all sorts of garden imagery, uh, Song of Songs chapter 4 culminates in this, a garden fountain, a well of living water. In other words, living water in the Old Testament is a, a metaphor for the love that a husband and wife are to satisfy one another with. And that love is but a small foretaste of the satisfaction that can only be found in Christ, the true bridegroom. And so when Christ tells this woman who's gone from lover after lover after lover, trying to find satisfaction, when he tells her, come and drink my living water and you'll never be thirsty again, verse 10, uh, verse 14, he's inviting her to be his bride. He's inviting us to be his bride. And we know that we're included in this because of the all-encompassing language he begins to use in verse 14. He says, whoever drinks of this water that I will give. Now, he even uses male pronouns, the water that I will give him. And so we know that, that Jesus isn't referring to some literal exclusive union with this woman. 
but he's inviting her and all of us who find ourselves in her to that ultimate marital union. As we come and drink of him and find our satisfaction in him, as we come to him and are intoxicated in his love, which is better than all those broken cisterns, his love, which is better even than wine, it's then that his living water will become in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 14, Jesus says the same thing in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, and it says that he said this about the Holy Spirit. And and, and so we see that the Holy Spirit, the source of eternal life, imparts that life to us as we come to Jesus and drink deeply of him. As we come to Jesus and drink deeply of the preaching of his word. As we come to Jesus and drink deeply of the wine that he provides at the Lord's table. As we drink deeply of him in prayer. In our private study of his word. This is what it means to drink of him. And as we do these things, the Holy Spirit will make those means of grace become in us springs of water welling up to eternal life. By the way, I think this explains what Jesus is getting at in verse 20 and following. When the woman asks Jesus about the worship of God and whether it's at Mount Zion or Mount Gerizim, Jesus says, neither. For the time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Well, what does it mean to worship in spirit? that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, What does it mean to worship in truth? It means we come to God through the one who is the truth, John 14, 6. In other words, worship is not about the temple. It's not about a specific location. It's about Christ who is the temple, the true reality of which the Old Testament temple is just a shadow. Worship is about drinking deeply of him by his Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is inviting this Samaritan woman to do, and that's what Jesus is inviting every one of us to do this evening, to forsake our idols, to forsake our broken cisterns, and to worship God by his Holy Spirit, having drunk of that living water, which is the Spirit, coming to him through the mediation of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Will you do that this evening? You who've gone from broken cistern to broken cistern yet remain thirsty. That you who've gone from romantic relationship to romantic relationship yet remain thirsty. Will you heed the words of Augustine who said, Our hearts remain restless until they find our rest in thee. No person can give you that rest. No job can give you that rest or that satisfaction. No hobby, no alcoholic drink can give you that satisfaction, that rest. Only Jesus Christ. Come and find it in him. And that's what this woman does. That's why she leaves her water jar in verse 28, and she runs back into town. Because having encountered the bridegroom, She thirsts no more. 
And if you're familiar with the other Gospels, her leaving her water jar is a lot like Peter and Andrew leaving their nets when Jesus called them. They do so, why? To become fishers of men. Likewise, she leaves her jar and she goes to tell others, she she goes to tell them, come and see, come and drink of this living water, come and see this man. The love of the bridegroom compels her to mission. That's what I was getting at in, in talking about how romance makes us evangelists. Uh, when my wife said yes on January 19th, 2013 in Newtown, Pennsylvania, I couldn't help but want to tell everyone I encountered about this, uh, about this good news. I wanted to tell everyone I saw. Now, I'm sure many of you remember having that same sort of experience. But the question that John 4 is asking us is, have you had that same sort of encounter with your heavenly bridegroom, that marriage leads to mission, that that the wedding leads to witness. Strangely, I I think many of us have been much slower than this Samaritan woman. But if she is a symbol of the church, which I hope you're convinced that she is, then her actions here are not just descriptive, but they're prescriptive. Look with me at the end of our passage as we move from wedding to witness. Uh, Verse 29, she says to the people in the town of Sychar, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And just as in Genesis 29, when Rachel runs back to her father and her family, and, and they come to meet Jacob and invite him to stay, so the Samaritans invite Jesus to stay. And they do so why? Because of the woman's testimony. And it says Jesus stayed there two days, and verse 41, many believed because of his word. And the Samaritans acknowledged him as the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. And so this passage does not just have something to say about mission, but about the success of that mission. Verse 35, Jesus says, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And as his disciples look up, what do they see? But a Samaritan revival. A whole host of Samaritans coming to see the bridegroom. Maybe you've heard a sermon or two in your day about mission that feels more like an impossible burden is being placed on you. That's not what's going on in this passage. This passage does call us to participate in the mission. We'll see that in a second. But it doesn't do so without giving us every reason to want to. First of all, because as we see ourselves in this woman and are humbled by our utter unworthiness to be Christ's bride, we cannot keep this good news to ourselves. But we're to be like the newly engaged young man who shouts from the rooftop, she said yes. Who tells everybody he knows, she said yes. We're we're to be like the obnoxious young lady who posts picture after picture on her social media of her new engagement ring because she's just so excited. We have living water welling up within us. We've tasted and seen that he's good. 
And now we go and tell others. Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who's thirsty take the water of life without price. Do we speak of Christ with that kind of enthusiasm? Have our hearts been so moved as this woman? Have we seen our sin the way that she sees hers? And then the second reason we take part in this mission is because we have confidence that those to whom we extend this invitation will respond. For not only does Jesus tell his disciples that the fields are ripe for harvest, not only does he give them a pledge and down payment on this coming harvest in this Samaritan revival, but he also tells them in verse 36 that already the sower and reaper are rejoicing together. This is an allusion to Amos 9, where the prophet says that in the latter days, the plowman will overtake the reaper because there will be such a great harvest. As one commentator says, Jesus is signaling that the latter days have dawned in his ministry in which sowing and reaping are coming together in the harvesting of the crop of the messianic community, the people of God. The crop is so great that that new seeds are already being planted even while the harvest is still being brought in. Jesus is encouraging his bride, the Church of Christ, to have a grand view of his missionary purpose in this world. He's not just the Savior of the Jews or even of the Samaritans. He's the Savior of the world. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, verse 34. And what is that work? According to verse 35, it's the harvesting of souls of which these Samaritans and of which this woman are the first fruits. And he invites us to participate in this work, not driven by guilt, Not driven by shame for not evangelizing enough, but driven by a heart that's been captured by his love. Congregation, that is why we give to the work of Christian missions. It's why we pray for the growth of Christ's kingdom. It's why we share the good news with others. It's why you have Vacation Bible School. It's it's why we invite others to come and see. Because our hearts have been captured by his love as we've tasted his living water. And that living water moves us to humble transparency. As we say, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Do you realize who that woman said this to? She said that to the very same people whom she'd been avoiding by coming to the well in the heat of day. To the very same people who'd likely been gossiping about her because of the kind of reckless life she lived. Or the very same people who wondered if all of those rumors about her really were true. But here the love of Christ compels her to confirm those rumors and say, Yes, I have lived a broken and sinful life, but this bridegroom has come to save even such as me. And so this woman gives us a lesson in evangelism. Do you understand that telling others about Jesus doesn't mean that you have to have your life all together? 
doesn't mean that they are, are not able to know that you're a sinner. In fact, they should know that. Here, the unconditional love of the bridegroom frees us to admit the kind of sinful, broken, unlovely people we are. And as we admit that, how much more attractive does the gospel become than when we try to fake it like we've got it all together? So this woman teaches us humble transparency, and the other thing we learn from her about witness is that anyone can do it. Notice what this woman didn't have. She didn't have a seminary degree. She hadn't been catechized. She, she didn't have a clue. But she was able to say, come and see this man. So can every one of us. It's okay if you don't have all the answers. That's part of being humbly transparent. It's okay if you don't know what to say. Can you tell people that you've tasted of this living water and nothing else can satisfy? Or can you simply tell people, come and taste this living water with me on Sunday as God's word is preached? I think every one of us can do that. Every one of us ought to do that because these are the marching orders that were given in Revelation 22. The Spirit and the Bride, that's us, say, Come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We can say that. We can pray that. And, and as our hearts are moved by the love of the bridegroom, we, uh, we will want to say that, and we will want to pray that. Amen. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to be our bridegroom, to love us despite our unloveliness, and as a husband does his wife, to wash us with the water of your word. And know as those who've been washed, as those who have been united to him and given all that he possesses, help us to want to say, come and see, come and drink, come and be satisfied. Help us to grow in our witness and help us to grow in our comprehension of the breadth and length and height and depth of your love in Christ Jesus, which compels us to mission. Amen.